Okay, welcome everyone. We're going to get started. Um, my name is Adam Nilsson, and I'm the head of education and interpretation here at the C.B. Hearst Museum of Anthropology. Uh, we're not here at the C.B.A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology right now, so that's somewhat uh, misspeaking, but uh, it is right down the hall. So I hope uh, that you have had a chance, if you haven't already, to check out the exhibit that this talk is a part of. Um, we just opened last week our new exhibit called Pleasure, Poison, Prescription, Prayer, the Worlds of Mind-Altering Substances, um, which features objects from the Hearst Collection of uh, 3.8 million objects from around the world, spanning 2 million years from every inhabited continent. So um, in our gallery down the hall, you will find a selection of objects representing 10 mind-altering substances um, that all tell different stories of the complexities of the meanings and migrations and uses and altering perceptions of, um, of mind-altering substances from around the world. So uh, we're glad you're here tonight because this is the first, uh, the first in our series of really fabulous events over um, the course of the next several months. That, um, that relate to this exhibit. So we have um, a series of talks. We also have um, programming for families. Um, you might ask about family programming about mind-altering substances, but we promise, uh, we promise uh, your kids will, uh, will, it'll be a wholesome experience for all. Um, so um, I wanna thank um, our staff, especially Katie Fleming and Jessica Moreno for putting together this event tonight. Um, and so on behalf of all of our staff, we welcome you. Um, I am going to interview, um, interview, introduce um, David Presti tonight. Um, so David E. Presti teaches neurobiology, psychology, and cognitive science at UC Berkeley here, where he's been on the faculty in molecular and cell biology for 28 years. His classes on topics uh, are on topics related to brain, mind, consciousness, neurochemistry, psychopharmacology, um, and psychopharmacology, and they typically reach more than 1,400 Berkeley students every year. For more than a decade, he worked in the treatment of addiction and post-traumatic uh, stress, stress disorder at the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center in San Francisco. And for the past 15 years, he's been teaching neuroscience and conversing about science and, uh, with, with Tibetan Buddhist monastics in India, Bhutan, and Nepal. And he is the author of uh, Foundational Concepts in Neuroscience, A Brain-Mind Odyssey, published in 2016, and of Mind Beyond Brain, published in 2018. So we're pleased to have him here tonight. And, um, and note that this talk will actually also be available as a podcast on Berkeley Talks. So you can tell your friends and family if they miss the talk that uh, they can find it there. Um, and like I said, our exhibit down the hall, um, please do check it out if you haven't already. And know that tonight we're actually open until 8 o'clock. So uh, there might be time, probably will be time at, at the end of the talk if you wanted to swing by. Otherwise, um, you can find our hours um, on our website. So uh, thank you for, again for being here, and welcome to David Presti. Thank you. Thank you very much. It, it really is a pleasure to be here. My screensaver popped on. And, uh, <laughs> these are photographs from Palestine and Israel last summer. Uh, so... Uh, Okay. First of all, it really, it's, this is such a cool exhibit, uh, and I have not really had time to dig down into it, but the, but the bits and pieces I've seen have been fabulous, so I encourage you all to check that out at length at some point if you haven't already. Um, it's really awesome that the enthusiasm around uh, the campus and the community is high for this uh, particular topic. But I accept it. <laughs> it is uh, um, uh, a great title. I love Pleasure, Poison, Prescription, Prayer. Uh, it's just, it really captures so much that's of essential importance about mind altering substances. Um, and it's just a privilege to be here, part of your uh, lecture series and cheerleading squad for this uh, exhibition and for the field of anthropology in general. I mean, I'm a, I'm a biologist and a psychologist, but my, real in, my deep interest in that area is the nature of the human mind and consciousness. 
uh, and what's going on with that and how can we expand the scientific discussion around that topic and there are many different ways into that territory. Mind-altering substances is one of them and the whole field of anthropology is a huge another uh, uh, vector into an expanding understanding of the nature of who we are uh, and our place in the world. Uh, so more power to anthropology. It's great to see all these these big placards around the campus. Uh, this is one on the main pathway that I took yesterday uh, uh, going to the Campanile. Uh, and there's another thing that speaks to <laughs> you. That's the same spot. That's like, that's like three or four years ago. You do not see Coca-Cola trucks on the campus now because the, uh, the campus contract with the drug purveyors of caffeinated beverages is now Pepsi rather than Coke. So <clears throat> overnight, all of, the, all of the Coke machines were replaced with Pepsi machines when that contract switch happened. I mean, it was very, like, sneaky. Okay. So one of my favorite words uh, that uh, really captures this, the essence of this subject really well is this word pharmacon, which comes from the ancient Greek, uh, it's the root, of course, of our words pharmacy and pharmaceutical and pharmacology and all of that. And the cool thing about this word is it means medicine and poison at the same time. Uh, and that's a really, really important notion. Uh, and that same notion, is, of course, is captured in the title of this exhibition, Poison and Prescription. That's poison and medicine, essentially. Uh, and then pleasure and prayer speak to other aspects of it that... Uh, that are also important, but this idea that what we call drugs or medicines or whatever are also poisons always, and you can't separate those two facets of what they are, the medicine and the poison, is really, really important and all too often forgotten. So, you know, we assume if we get something at a pharmacy that's a prescription medicine, that of course it can't be a poison, it's just a medicine. And, uh, and then other things like uh, some drug that we've heard of, like heroin or cocaine or something like that, well, of course, that's just a poison that doesn't have any medicinal qualities to it, but really they all have all of it. Uh, and the other thing that I feel is a really important aspect of these medicines and poisons is that they have enjoyed long histories of, many of them have enjoyed long histories of association with humanity and with cultures uh, and they have been considered as allies, you know, things that the people draw upon as sources of uh, support and strength. Uh, a friend, an ally who helps you out when you're in trouble. Uh, and allies have power, otherwise wouldn't be very, you know, useful to have such a, uh, such a thing, such an entity uh, as an ally if it were a wimp, you know, that wouldn't be very helpful. Uh, so allies have power. And that power has been historically respected and revered uh, and appreciated for its awesomeness. Uh, and that gave rise to the development of ritual around the use of psychoactive substances. So historically, mind-altering plants in human societies were treated with respect and reverence, and their use revolved around ritual. Uh, <clears throat> ritual is related to the, the Greek uh, root ritus, which means rite, which is, a, which is, which is derivative from the, from the from, that's the Latin, the Greek arithmetos, uh, which means number, same as our root for arithmetic. And so a ritual is something that has a kind of prescribed uh, set of delineated activities associated with the use of this substance or with, with whatever, uh, and in this case with the use of a substance. And it just, it's a way really of bringing mindful, focused attention to the process of whatever the use is. Uh, I like this sign here that was advertising a coffee shop just a couple blocks from here down uh, west on Bancroft from here uh, a few years ago. It's not there anymore. Stimulating conversation. So the idea being that uh, you know the, the the ritual of sitting down and having coffee together is also a, a springboard for having you know, interesting conversations and so forth. 
So let's start with coffee. Now, there are lots and lots and lots of mind-altering substances and way more than we can talk about in 45 minutes to an hour or whatever. You know, I want to leave time for questions and so forth. Uh, so I've decided to just do something really relatively brief on, uh, on each of the 10 things that are, that are mentioned in this exhibition in the, down the hall. Um, and there are many more things, and some of these other things will be spoken to uh, by other folks in, in evening presentations like this over the coming months. And I, I teach a whole class in the fall semester here called Drugs in the Brain. It has 600-plus students in it generally. And for each of these substances, there's anywhere from an hour and a half to four hours of lecture. So, uh, and some things I can just go on and on and on forever about, like tobacco or something like that. Uh, and coffee is another one of those things where it's just possible. You can talk for days about coffee. Uh, and, and again, historically, coffee emerges out of, <clears throat> out of northeastern Africa, uh, maybe a thousand years ago, it started to percolate up out of there into into uh, into the Middle East. And 500 years ago, there were cafes springing up in Europe, and eventually, not too long after that, in the what's now the United Kingdom, um, and it really took off from there. Uh, but uh, in northeastern Africa, it's probably been around much longer, uh, and it was always consumed in a very respectful, ritual, ritual way, uh, and in small quantities that were quite strong and concentrated and often flavored with, with, uh, with spices and so forth. Uh, there's the plant and uh, beautiful aromatic white flowers and then these berries that develop like cherries. They're called coffee cherries. And then within the, the cherry uh, are two seeds that become what we call coffee beans. And then they're dried and roasted and uh, dried and fermented and roasted and then ground to make coffee. We're familiar with some of our local legends about This is, of course, uh, Alfred Peet, who founded Peet's and really was one of the first people to bring kind of quality culture of quality coffee to the United States from Europe, from his native Holland, uh, which was really big in coffee because of their the, the historic role of the Dutch in in trade, beginning back in the 1500s and 1600s. Uh, that's Giovanni Giotto, who started Café Trieste in, uh, in San Francisco in the 1950s uh, and really introduced the Italian tradition of, of uh, espresso, into which, which was invented in Italy only in the 20th century, uh, into American culture. And then they opened a café later, years later in, in Berkeley. So... Coffee, which historically has been consumed like that, we, we know what's happened to it now. Uh, <laughs> it's larger and larger and larger, you know, supersizing of the, of the containers. And uh, also uh, a detachment from the ritual consumption. So it's not uncommon for folks to go into a coffee shop and grab a, whatever that 917 milliliter thing is, uh, full of coffee, and then walk out and get into their car and drive away, or maybe not even get out of their car when they do it. There are drive-through ones. Uh, so it's a very, very different relationship we have with this, uh, with this sacred, uh, ancient, powerfully stimulating beverage as a, uh, in the last, uh, uh, just in the last few years, really. And I don't even know what these things are. <laughs> Is that really coffee? <laughs> uh, Okay, so the other the other thing about coffee, and that's that I love this thing here. This is you know that this is at fifty second and Telegraph. It's like a drive through oil change and espresso. <laughs> hilarious. Who would have thought of that? <laughs> and, and and but it really speaks to the culture of stimulants that we have, that we live in. A culture we're a culture of speed uh, and. Uh, not everyone is a caffeine consumer, but the majority of adults in the world are caffeine consumers, uh, and certainly in the United States. Uh, and so even if you yourself are not consuming caffeine on a regular basis, probably most of the people around you are. So the culture is driven by this kind of engagement with a powerful stimulant drug uh, that, as some have said, 
was the perfect drug for capitalism <laughs> or for mercantilism. Because uh, uh, in the early days when coffee hit Europe, uh, they, had no, they had no connection with any kind of stimulant beverage. They drank beer. They got up in the morning and they drank beer for breakfast because the water was often sketchy uh, and uh, you know, beer was somewhat sterile because of the alcohol. Uh, so the idea of getting up in the morning and being stimulated and going out there and doing a bunch of stuff, uh, accomplishing, uh, didn't, it's, it just didn't happen that way. You got up and you got drunk and then you <laughs> got into fights all day. Uh, so uh, so uh, and it wasn't just coffee. It was coffee and tea and cacao, the source of chocolate, that all entered the European sphere around the same era. Uh, in the 1500s and 1600s, changed everything. Uh, and and I, I love the way, if, if you had to read like one book or one set of books on psychoactive substances, I highly recommend these, but they're not, you know, as Gary Snyder said in his preface to the first volume, they're not for everyone, uh, but neither is mountaineering. Uh, and uh, uh, I use these books in my, as the text for my drug and, drugs in the brain class, and they're they're really they're they're poetic works of ethnobotany uh, by a dear uh, friend of mine who died last year, Dale Pendle. Uh, and I love the way he says this: "It is the very pervasiveness of the intoxication that makes it so invisible. It blends completely with the landscape. It is the landscape." He's talking about caffeine. Uh, caffeine so permeates our world uh, as this powerful stimulant drug that most people are high on uh, that we don't even notice it. <clears throat> and if you, if, if you ask people to name the, the top drugs uh, that in terms of prevalence of use, they'll say things like alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, Prozac. They completely miss uh, uh, caffeine. Uh, which is by far the number one most widely used psychoactive or mind-altering substance on the planet. Every office, large or small, has its shrine, its altar, its sacred space, uh, however modest, to the coffee plant. Beautifully said. So there have been some molecules that are identified in the uh, in, uh, from coffee and uh, from other psychoactive plants like tea and cacao as well. They are what are, what are collectively called the methylated xanthines. And there's caffeine, theobromine, and theophylline. They all look very similar. Don't worry about the meaning of these things. If they're familiar to you, great. If they're not, there's just a bunch of carbon atoms, nitrogen atoms, oxygens, and hydrogens hooked together with different shapes. And uh, we... <clears throat> In our contemporary biophysical science, uh, which includes chemistry, uh, the, we explain everything in terms of atoms and molecules and, and configurations therefrom. Uh, and so we, we understand the stimulant activity of caffeine or of coffee, say, uh, as due to the presence of these molecules, in particular caffeine, uh, that uh, interact with the nervous system in a way. In the case of caffeine, it sticks to a a kind of protein receptor called the adenosine receptor, uh, which normally when the endogenous neurotransmitter adenosine binds to that receptor, it produces a kind of slowing down of the nervous system, a decreased excitability, and caffeine sticks onto that same receptor and blocks it. So the normal slowing down or decreased excitability doesn't happen, so what do you get? You get more excitability, and so there's just more activity somehow, and somehow that gets translated into kind of alertness and wakefulness and energy and so forth. Caffeine was identified from coffee in 1820. This is a very important set of events happening around this time about identifying molecules from plants and then saying, aha, now we understand the activity of the plant. It's that molecule. And that's what happened with uh, caffeine. Tea, another gorgeous, psychoactive, mind-altering plant uh, that is native to East Asia uh, and, like coffee, has spread around the entire world uh, and has been appreciated by the, by the peoples that that, that uh, lived in East Asia several thousand years ago as a, for its stimulant effects, but it didn't reach Europe until the 1500s, around the same time uh, coffee did. 
And there's lots of ceremonial ritual aspects attached to the consumption of tea, ranging from Japanese tea ceremonies to British tea ceremonies and, and so forth. Uh, there's the plant, Camellia sinensis. It's a, a camellia. Uh, there's a tea plantation in northern India. Here's another. Uh, so the big three caffeinated or caffeine-containing plants or xanthine-containing plants uh, would be coffee, tea, and theobromo cacao, or cacao, the source of chocolate. Uh, the, the, the very name theobromo, theobromo means food of the gods. It was named by Linnaeus uh, back in the 1700s, and who appreciated that in the ancient cultures of Central America, where this plant is native, uh, it was revered. Uh, it was used in many ritual contexts. The seeds were considered so valuable that they were used as currency. Uh, and so the cacao pods grow on trees. It's a tropical plant. It grows on trees. It grows directly out of the, the limb uh, as a pod following the flower. If you, it's very hard, but if you chop it open with a machete, there's a kind of white stuff inside. Uh, and in, embedded in the white stuff uh, is a bunch of seeds, maybe 25 or 30 of those seeds. And those are the cacao seeds. Uh, and those are what become the beans to make what we call chocolate. So you take, when you first pull one of these things out of the pod and eat it, it doesn't taste anything like chocolate. Uh, but as soon as it starts to oxidize after exposure to air and ferment a little bit, because there's organisms everywhere that will start changing the chemistry of it, then it very quickly starts to develop the qualities of what we call chocolate. It's really quite Interesting what happens over just a period of a few minutes, 30 minutes, and you can, you can taste the flavor difference. Uh, and uh, so that's, I mean, I have just removed those from the pod, and they're in my hand, and they taste like, they taste like a kind of a bitter, fruity flavor. Uh, and different varieties of beans will taste slightly different, but they do not taste like chocolate, at least in my minimal experience of, 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 of encountering the, the raw uh, or the yeah, the freshly harvested cacao beans. Now, there are many, many graphic depictions from ancient Central America, probably some available in the museum here somewhere, uh, that show engagement in a ritualistic way around beverages presumably made with cacao. Uh, and in the modern days, uh, uh, the beans are after they're harvested and dried, well, they're fermented first. I mean, most of these things are always fermented. That means you just let them kind of marinate in their own moisture for a few days in the presence of the ambient microbial world, uh, and those <coughs> microorganisms start to change the flavor. They operate on molecules to make them into other molecules. And so typically after the cacao Beans are removed from the pod. They sit around in a pile for a few days, and different farmers will have their different techniques of fermentation. Uh, and then they'll dry them, uh, and then they can be shipped. They have some stability at that point, and they can be shipped to wherever the uh, factory is that's going to make it into chocolate. So at that point, they're roasted, just in the same way coffee beans are. That's a roaster. That's, that roaster was at the Scharfenberger factory in Berkeley when, <clears throat> when there used to be a Scharfenberger factory in Berkeley before it got bought by Hershey's and turned into a, you know, part of the machine. Uh, but, uh, but it's still good chocolate. You know, it, it didn't somehow they've, kept, they've maintained the quality. <clears throat> so uh, they're roasted, they're broken up, then they're put into this thing called a melanger uh, where there's big granite slabs that grind it into a paste and then sugar is added and then it's heated up and tempered and cooled down and that's what we call chocolate. Uh, and, uh, and then the sugar is usually a significant component of this ranging from inferior chocolates that may have 80% or 75% sugar and 20-25% cacao to quality ones that have 70% uh, and above uh, uh, cacao in them. So again, in addition to the stimulant molecules up there, there are in, a, in, in coffee, tea, and chocolate, there are lots of flavonoid molecules that are antioxidants. There, they, there's many reasons to believe that 
consumption of all of these things that we've talked about here that's not in excess actually is a healthy thing to do as long as it doesn't have a lot of sugar in it. So if, uh, if you're eating dark chocolate or unsweetened tea and coffee, uh, then that's, unless it's excessive, that it has not been shown to be unhealthy. Uh, and in part that presumably is due to these antioxidant molecules. There's also this amino acid called theanine, which is in green tea, that it's, it seems to act in some synergistic ways with the caffeine in there, but it's not really clear exactly to me yet what's going on with that. So molecules, lots of molecules. So at the end of the 19th century, there was a, uh, a different, there was a kind of commodification of of the stimulant effects of, uh, of uh, the caffeinated plants uh, in this beverage uh, called Coca-Cola, which started out as a competitor for uh, alcohol beverages that contained cocaine. Uh, so there was a bit, there were some very, very product, uh, popular wines, red wine that had, been mar- had marinated uh, coca leaf in it, and so they had cocaine in it, so people would drink this wine, you know, would have a stimulant effect and a kind of chill effect of the wine. Uh, but so there was also a big temperance movement in the beginning in the late 19th century, and a lot of people didn't want the alcohol. So that provided an opportunity for an entrepreneurial pharmacist in Georgia to say, okay, well, I'll make a temperance stimulant beverage. Uh, it won't have any alcohol in it. Uh, it'll have coca-, coca leaf in it for to get some cocaine, uh, and it'll also have cola nut from Africa, which has caffeine, and he called it Coca-Cola. Uh, and uh, it, uh, uh, it was first marketed in the 1880s. It was called an invigorating brain tonic and cure for all nervous afflictions. It was uh, one of the early uh, kind of... Uh, uh, companies to really exploit advertising to put the product out there in some way. Uh, and the cocaine was eventually removed from the, from the recipe. Uh, the caffeine was boosted by adding, in addition to cola nut, adding a lot of just pure chemical caffeine, which is still the case, uh, and so forth. And of course, we've seen this whole world of these sorts of things evolve into all kinds of caffeinated soda pop sort of things. Uh, but also energy drinks that have you know way more ca- they 're basically sugar water with caffeine in them that's that 's really what uh, uh, what what an energy drink is okay and then the ultimate deconstruction of the coffee plant <laughs> or tea plant or cacao plant is just caffeine pills you know stay awake pills and there are any number of different brands of of, uh, of caffeine fill pills that are marketed for endurance or to just stay awake and have energy focus and blah, blah. Okay. And at, what with all of this happening and Frappuccinos and all this, at the, at the same time, it's very heartening to see that there's a lot of interest in a return to the ritual artistic qualities of relationship with the plant. So these are all, these are only a fraction of local San Francisco Bay Area coffee roasters. You know, Pete started it all, but Pete has now become, you know, much bigger. Uh, and, uh, but these, these, these are all like small, lo- relatively small local companies. Uh, some of them become bigger like Blue Bottle. Uh, but I like, you know, ritual even calls itself ritual. It's honoring the name of this is a ritual engagement with a, with a really awesome, profound, sacred, psychoactive substance, uh, the plant. Next plant. I better speed it up. We'll never get through this. <clears throat> so uh, Papaver somniferum, the opium poppy, native to central and southern Europe and the Mediterranean area. Uh, there, there are written records that go back pretty much as old as we have written records, uh, old uh, Sumerian tablets and so forth that speak to the medicinal properties of opium. Uh, so five, four, five thousand years old. Um, and uh, however, this is what we often currently see related to opium. This is the number of, of deaths from drug overdoses uh, in 19, well, 
from 1999 to 2017 in the United States, uh, you can see that in 2017, 72,000 people died in the United States from drug overdoses. 60,000 of them were from opioids, which are related to opium, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, so that's almost 200 people a day dying from a drug overdose, most of which are opioids. And then if you break that down by what kind of opioid, there's a bunch from heroin, there's a bunch from other uh, opioids, uh, and the, by far the highest number is the, is the fentanyl and other synthetics. And so a lot of these things are legally obtained as pills and so forth. Some are synthesized in, in illicit scenarios and so forth. So this is a real, of course, that we hear about this a lot, the, the opioid crisis. Uh, it really is a crisis. Uh, so what happened? So first of all, what is... Uh, opium and what are opioids. So this poppy is a beautiful plant. Uh, people grow it in their yards, even though technically it's illegal because uh, it's a Schedule II controlled substance. Uh, but uh, when the petals fall off, you have a seed pod here, this green uh, round thing. Uh, it looks, and then if, you, if it dries, if it dries and then it kind of deteriorates, then what falls out are the poppy seeds. And these are the same poppy seeds we eat. Um, on bagels and muffins and whatnot, and you can buy them in seed stores, uh, in nurseries and so forth. They never call them opium poppies. They have disguised <laughs> names like Zahir poppy or bread seed poppy. But if you look at what the, the, the Latin name is, it's Papaver somniferum, which is the opium poppy. So if you don't let it dry <clears throat> and you sliced it open when it's green, you'd see a bunch of immature seeds in there. But if you don't slice it all the way open like that, but you just put some slits in it, uh, then after just a few minutes, some gooey stuff begins to dribble out of those slits. And that is opium. Uh, and then uh, in the way that opium is harvested uh, and uh, in places where it's, say, grown Ill illicitly to make, eventually make, turn into heroin, uh, like Afghanistan, for the last 20 years since the United States went there. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, or India, which has a lot of legal uh, uh, opium poppy farms uh, and so forth for, for growing medicinal uh, opium from which morphine is made. Uh, they, this is all done by hand. You know, people are paid to actually walk through there and make the little slices and slicing. It only is cost effective because it's being done in a part of the world where folks are paid very, very, very low wages. Uh, if you had to do that in the United States, it would never work, you know, to do it this way. Uh, and, uh, but in any case, it's, it's collected and then it can be refined. Uh, but opium has been used in in medicine for thousands of years. And if we go back, say, 200 years or 220 years, and we look and see what's in the pharmacy, there's a few plants and there's you know, some weird minerals and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of this stuff kind of worked marginally or sometimes worked and sometimes didn't, but opium always worked. Uh, it's, it's, it, was the, it was the most effective medicine for a variety of things. Pain relief, mainly. Analgesia, number one best pain reliever on the planet, uh, are, uh, is, is opium or derivatives that come from it. Anxiolytic, reducing anxiety. Sedation, producing relaxation and even sleep. Cough suppression. And decreased intestinal motility means slowing down the movement of the intestines, which means it's a good treatment for diarrhea. Uh, and then pupil constriction, which is not really a medical effect, but it's a physiological thing, closing down the pupils of the eyes. So these were the medical uses that it was appreciated for. It was widely distributed as medicines of various kinds in the, 18, in the late 1800s in the United States. These are various things that were just basically solutions of alcohol solutions of opium, uh, and they were sold as uh, cough syrups and and pain relief for children who were crying when their teeth came in. Uh, Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup for children's teething and for mom's enjoyment at the same time. Uh, so so it, this was the epic event of, of modern pharmacology, uh, of modern natural products chemistry, of neurochemistry, I would argue. And that was in 1803, uh, 
the, uh, the discovery was made by a young guy in Germany, Frederick Wilhelm Sertener, who was a pharmacist assistant, 20 years old, working in Germany. He was interested in, like, why opium worked. And, and he was, chemistry was beginning to come into its own as a subject. He knew some chemistry, so he was doing various kinds of extractions. And then he manages to purify out a, a single molecular species, a, sim, a single chemical species that he could purify and crystallize. He could show it was a, a pure chemical by measuring its melting point and finding that it was very, very narrow. It wasn't contaminated. It didn't have a whole bunch of stuff in there that would melt at different temperatures. And then he ate it and, or, and gave it to a few of his friends to do a, a, a bigger study and determined that the uh, mind-altering effects of, of, uh, of opium were substantially captured in this purified substance, except this stuff was much stronger than the opium was. And so he figured he had discovered the active principle, the active chemical principle of opium. He called it morphine, named after the Greek god Morpheus of dreams. Uh, and that was epic because prior to Sertner's identification of morphine, uh, nobody had really done that. Nobody had even thought of doing that. I mean, the idea that you could take a plant that had magical medical, medicinal properties to it or psychoactive properties to it uh, and, and that were coming from who knows where and then show that it was due to some kind of purified crystalline substance in the plant, that was weird, uh, to say the least. But it started a whole sort of movement in German chemistry during the 19th century, well, it must be true for everything, you know, or for all plants. We just have to figure out, like, what the molecules are. So uh, for, we, we collectively, we call these molecules that have a substantially the same or similar activity to the opium substance, the opium resin. We call them opiates or opioids. Morphine, codeine, and thebane are the three structures that have been determined from uh, opium, morphine is the most active, codeine is somewhat less, and thebane is essentially not active just because of the small chemical differences in the molecule. Uh, <clears throat> so now we have the opium poppy reduced to morphine, and not that long after that, in 1820, uh, caffeine was isolated from coffee. So now we've got two, two down and uh, a few hundred more to go. Uh, but you know, the, 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 uh, the trend was going like we've been able to figure out how this plant does its magical stuff uh, by isolating the molecule. I call this the profound reduction. It really changed everything about the way folks thought about kind of a reverence for the plant. It was now... It's just a chemical, you know, instead of, instead of this kind of magical plant in some way. Uh, and it's consistent with a, 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 an idea which had been developing already in Western science, Western physical science uh, and, chemist, and chemistry, which is derivative from physics, um, that uh, you should be able to reduce, in order to understand something, some kind of phenomena, we can reduce it to some kind of fundamental building blocks in some way. Um, and we still operate with that as a major kind of uh, theme uh, in the way that we do science. And this was completely consistent with that. Now, if we look at uh, DNA, you know, DNA is a magnificent example of this because before DNA, the struck double helical structure of DNA was discovered in the early 1950s, and then in the 10 years after that, the genetic code was worked out that translated the DNA into proteins. Uh, the, 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 uh, the explanation or an understanding of how heredity worked, how cells stored information and passed it on to future generations was completely mysterious. It was just magic. And, and many esteemed scientists thought, we'll never figure this out. It's just too... It's too complicated and cells are so small and what's going on well they figured this out and uh, uh, not only that uh, within a few decades uh, by the late 70s uh, it had become possible to genetically modify bacteria to make other molecules and the first ones to be made were two human hormones somatostatin and and insulin and that started the biotech industry. You know, Genetech here in, in the Bay Area 
became what they are first by their very first product, which was uh, GMO insulin, you know, where you put the gene for making insulin uh, into bacteria and then just culture the bacteria in a big vat and have it crank out insulin. And once that was done in the late 70s, it was really clear to anyone who was like paying attention that this is going to work for anything anybody wants to do this for. I mean, it'll take a while to figure out the genes and figure out how to get them in there, but eventually we'll do that. And eventually, and sure enough, that's what we've done. And with greater and greater precision now, using all of the tools of modern molecular biology, some of which have been invented here on campus, uh, they, uh, you're, it's possible to kind of snip out genes and put them in where you want. And, and basically, you know, with enough attention, you can get these little microorganisms to make just about anything that's a natural product that's, some, that's being made somewhere in nature. So if we take yeast as our microorganism of choice, being a eukaryote like us and more kind of genetic similarity uh, to moving the genes around between, say, plants and, and yeast and bacteria, uh, the, first, the first of these mind-altering substances to go down that path was, in fact, morphine. So uh, four years ago now, not that long ago, groups at Berkeley and at Stanford uh, came up with, uh, with genetically modified yeast that they had inserted the genes into, uh, the genes being taken from three different kinds of poppies and some other things, including a rat, uh, and, get the, and got the yeast to make morphine. Uh, so or make thebane, from which morphine can easily be made. So the, this means, although this has, as far as I know, this hasn't been fully developed yet to an industrial scale, uh, it means that essentially all the growing of opium poppies to produce morphine for the, for the manufacture then of pharmaceutical morphine and also all of the semi-synthetic opioids that get made from morphine or thebane, like oxycodone and hydromorphone and all that stuff can now be GMO'd. Uh, so it's really, you know, this was a revolutionary step in this whole sort of uh, profound reductive uh, scenario here. Okay, moving on. Uh, here's another one of the plants, Nicotianum tobaccum, uh, or tobacco. Uh, so, I, so tobacco, I, I mentioned when I teach my drugs in the brain class, uh, I can go on for, I have to like cut myself off on the tobacco because it can go on for days and there's a lot of stuff to talk about in that class. Uh, but uh, I love tobacco and, and its history as a powerful shamanic plant. Uh, really one of the most powerful plants in terms of the, its effect on the human psyche. Um, and every time I see tobacco growing anywhere, I always take pictures of it. This is in George Washington's backyard. George Washington grew some tobacco in his garden. Uh, and uh, Cuba and Peru, these big giant tobacco things in Peru that are twice as tall as I am. This was in Palestine last summer. Uh, this, and this was in India last summer. I mean, we were driving through South India, and all of a sudden we were completely surrounded by tobacco. And I said, oh, my God, let's stop. And, so, and then there was this guy here who was, who was one of the tobacco farmers, and he was, drying, he, was, he, was, he was drying the tobacco and curing it and aging him, aging it. So we hung out for him with him for a while. My wife, Christy, there, who's there in the front row. <laughs> uh, and again, this is in Cuba, you know, where uh, they have a culture that values tobacco as a powerful, uh, really revered plant. Uh, and they, you know, they pride themselves on making fine cigars and, and so forth. And I, I wandered around in all these cigar factories and, and took pictures of them making cigars. Nobody was, I mean, there was no tourist industry for doing this. So I had to talk my way in, bribe people, you know, to let me go in the cigar factory. But it was really fun. Uh, so, and of course, this is what's come. This is, what, this is one step along the path of tobacco here. You know, the, the mass production of these uh, much more uh, easy-to-use delivery devices called cigarettes. Uh, and the heavy use of those things, which has led to, I mean, if you go back to 1900 in the United States, you know, cigarette consumption was essentially zero. I mean, they'd barely been invented. Uh, and then as you go through the 20th century, uh, it goes up and up and up. In times of uh, 
you know, in times of stress, like wars and so forth, it goes up even more because the, one of the profound, the, the single most profound medicinal aspect of tobacco is its anxiolytic effect. It really relaxes. It relaxes and stimulates at the same time, uh, which is what people love about it. You know, and they love it so much that several billion people are addicted to it. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it goes up and up and up. World War II was the best thing that ever happened to the tobacco industry because there were lots of free cigarettes distributed among military personnel during World War II, and they all came back uh, as smokers. Uh, so it went up and up and up, and it only started to go down when there started to be attention uh, to the health consequences of smoking. But it took a while for that to happen. If you look at the uh, lung cancer deaths, in the United States, you can see that it tracks the increase in per capita cigarette consumption, but it lags by about 25 years. So it took a while for folks to really get it uh, about how uh, what a what a uh, what the health what the negative health consequences were for tobacco, and it's continuing to drop. But of course, we've seen a uh, here, this is worldwide as it's gone down in the United States, it's gone up in a lot of other countries. So whereas the adult smoking prevalence in the United States is roughly 22% of the people uh, over the age of 12 in the United States are regular smokers, that is, at least once a month. Uh, <clears throat> but if you look at Russia or China, 60% in Russia, 50% in Ukraine, 53% in China, so forth. Uh, and again, a few, just a few years after caffeine, nicotine was was isolated from the tobacco plant and, and folks could say, aha, it's the nicotine you know, that is doing uh, what, what tobacco does. And now most recently, just in the last few years, we've seen the introduction of, of uh, nicotine delivery devices, which are called vapes or e-cigarettes or something like that, which are basically, for the most part, just solutions of nicotine uh, with some propylene glycol or some other weird stuff in there to make all the smoke stuff that looks like smoke, the aerosol. Um, so it's just a, it's a delivery device for a single chemical drug, nicotine. Uh, and uh, one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, <clears throat> the reinforcing aspects of it, in addition to the pharmacologic effects of nicotine, is the fact that people get to connect with their breath. And look at that. You can't miss your breath when you're doing that. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and uh, it's really widely appreciated when you, by, by folks who are into traditions like yoga that connecting with your breath is a very, very powerful process. And uh, in meditation traditions and so forth, to connect with the breath is a deeply grounding process. So just the very fact that they actually take a moment I think the uh, battery died on the, on the mic or something, uh, that they actually take a moment and connect with their breath uh, is one of the things that make these things so addictive. You have a, you yeah, have I have a spare battery. Okay. I'll just keep talking. You can hear me okay, right? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, okay. Next plan. Okay. Best Arabic kohel. This is in Jordan. Uh, and so this is the Middle East, Arabic, uh, and uh, kohel, eyeliner. Well, that's the root of our word alcohol. <clears throat> so alcohol, al-kohel uh, in Arabic, means essence. It, it, originally, it meant eyeliner. I guess it still means eyeliner. Uh, so <clears throat> eyeliner, uh, but eyeliner which originally, I don't know what it's made out of now, but originally it was made out of fine powdered molybdenum, a certain metal, uh, and it was thought to bring out the essence of someone's eyes, which in some way represented the essence of the person in some deep way. So from that, we, took, we borrowed that word and used it to describe the carrier for the essence of a plant, the aromatic qualities of a plant, the the alchemists of the Middle East a thousand years ago developed the process of distillation in order to concentrate the aromatic essences of plants to make perfumes. Uh, and then from that, we have derived alcoholic beverages and so forth. Thank you. Um, and uh, 
so that's how we got the word alcohol to describe this intoxicating molecule from Yes, look at that. It's back. I just realized. Let me just do this. I'm trying to turn flux off. Usually it's on my toolbar, but I can't see the toolbar. I don't know. Maybe I can do it. I don't want it to start getting weird shades of orange. <laughs> flux is a is a piece of software that that as it gets later, um, it uh, it changes the spectral quality of the light so that uh, uh, it, more, it looks more like nighttime and sunset. You know, it changes from the blue, the bright blue that you get uh, on a screen. Normally, it changes it more to something like sunset. And that is known to uh, be more conducive to not having a disrupted sleep at night. Because if you, if you use devices shortly before going to bed and you don't have something like flux that's changing the spectral quality of it, uh, the, the controlled studies have shown that that does disrupt sleep because it's like you still think it's the middle of the day in some way. So distillation, this is a book from the 1600s. Okay, there's our buddy yeast. Now, look, now in this case, it is the yeast that's producing the alcohol, so it doesn't have to be GMO. This is, a, this is the natural function of this, of this particular yeast is it consumes the carbohydrate, the sugars that are in fruits like grapes or in... Uh, uh, in, in uh, grains that have been sprouted to break down some of the carbohydrates to simpler sugars, uh, then you throw the yeast in, or you don't even have to throw it in because it's everywhere, it just falls in, uh, and then you let it sit around for a few days and you have wine or beer. Uh, and if you distill it, you have distilled things. Um, so the yeast are the machines that make the alcohol, uh, but... What, there's been an additional uh, kind of twist in the GMOing here. Again, a local Berkeley group, same group that was involved with the morphine, uh, they, they said, look, okay, what we, one of the things we add to beer is hops for its bitter flavor quality. Uh, and it, originally, hops was one of many different plants that were added to European beers to give them various sorts of not only flavors, but psychoactive effects. Hops has a psychoactive effect. It's a sedative. Uh, and, uh, and it counter, I mean, it, it kind of synergizes with some of the uh, sedative effects of the alcohol. Uh, and so here what they've done is they've GMO'd the yeast to make these two molecules here, geraniol and linalool, uh, that are two of the dozens of different kinds of aromatic molecules that are found in hops but there are two that are very important. There's the high concentrations of those two. So if you taste those two by themselves, you say, oh, that kind of tastes like an IPA or something like that. Uh, and so now uh, they're proposing that, they, in fact, there's even a company now in Berkeley that started that's selling beer that has uh, the, the, the GMO'd, uh, you know, the, the same yeast make the beer, make the alcohol, and also make the hops flavor. You know, because they have the genes stuck in. So, again, uh, part of the great reduction. <clears throat> okay, next, cannabis, uh, a very uh, complicated plant, to say the least. I think there's going to be a number of lectures down the down the way on on cannabis. Better hurry up. <laughs> so, okay, lots of stuff with cannabis. You know, lots of medicinal effects. You've heard about those. Uh, and there's a, <laughs> there's a there's a unique you know set of chemicals in the cannabis called cannabinoids, and uh, that's one of them. Delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol. Uh, there are there are the two most famous ones: THC, uh, delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol, and cannabidiol (CBD). Uh, they're made uh, the, like the TH, THC is largely derived from 
tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, which is what's found in the cannabis plant by heating. Um, and, and then there's a bunch of other terpenes that provide the aromatic qualities of the cannabis, but also have synergistic effects with cannabinoids and certainly account for some of the medicinal properties of cannabis in ways we don't understand. There's been a whole new realm of neuroscience which is developed around this because, following the discovery of receptors in the brain and body that the cannabinoids interact with. They're found all over the body. They're endogenous neurotransmitters that stick to those receptors that are called endocannabinoids. They're involved in all kinds of stuff. So that's, that speaks to the, to the medicinal uh, and mind-altering complexity of the, of the cannabis plant. And again, uh, the Berkeley group uh, has GMO <laughs> yeast. This was just last month, uh, GMO yeast to produce cannabinoids. Uh, again, so we don't need to grow the cannabis plant anymore. We could just GMO the yeast and cook up all the CBD we want. Uh, so it does have, if, if, if the end product that you're after is pure CBD, this is a really good way uh, to get that. High quality and uh, lower cost. Uh, there's the pathway. Okay. The peyote cactus is represented in the exhibition here. This, this is a sacred cactus that's native to central Mexico up into the very southern part of the Texas in the Rio Grande area. Uh, it, uh, it is a, a sacramental substance of the huichols, and, and then by, <clears throat> by migration it has moved up into become the sacrament of the, of the North American Native American church, but that didn't happen until the 19th century, uh, whereas the huichol use of it goes back several thousand years. Uh, and uh, the molecule mescaline was identified from the peyote cactus in 1897. Uh, it was the very first psychedelic substance to be found in nature. Uh, and it was, again, part of this same uh, trend of trying to find the most active molecule in a powerfully mind-altering plant of some kind. Uh, the eureka the nut, or sometimes called the beetle nut from Southeast Asia, a palm tree, I'm going to just run through this very quickly. It's used by hundreds of millions of people, but even though we don't hear about, much about it here because it's not our culture. It's wrapped in a leaf, piper beetle, uh, that uh, is a member of the pepper family that provides some kind of synergistic something that nobody <laughs> understands, uh, as well as some flavor qualities. Uh, there's a product called Pond, um, which uh, contains the areca nut and the beetle leaf something called slaked lime, which is essentially calcium hydroxide, uh, which is essentially, historically, was made by taking limestone or seashell and burning it, and then mixing it with water. Uh, and, and then there are various op optional flavors in there. Uh, sometimes it has tobacco added, has a different name, tabaku pan. Uh, there's a kind of dessert version, which is called sweet pan, which is child-friendly. It may or may not have the eureka nut in it, uh, and, uh, but it's, you know, tasty. Uh, and again, all over India and, uh, and in other parts of, of Southeast Asia, they, they serve this stuff. Uh, now, the question is, what's going on with this slaked lime? <clears throat> because you'll see in the exhibition here, there's a lot of containers that were actually very ritual, beautiful, elaborate, <clears throat> metal containers that were made to hold the slaked lime, which has nothing to do with the fruit lime. This is, this is burnt limestone, basically, uh, mixed with water. Uh, it's kind of a white pasty substance. Um, and folks would paint it, would, would take the beetle nut and put some of the ground up or sliced up beetle nut in their mouth. There are beetle cutters in the exhibit. Beetle nuts are very hard. They need to be shaved into something quite fine to be able to use. Um, but somebody discovered at some point, like if you took some limestone or seashell and burnt it and mixed it with water and then put that in your mouth at the same time, uh, you got more of a, of a mind-altering effect from the beetle, from the, from the eureka nut. Now, I don't know. I don't really know how they thought of that. <laughs> there has been a molecule called arecoline, which has been identified as the primary active ingredient. Uh, the, the mechanism for that slake lime, so the, 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 the calcium hydroxide is basic, and our mouth is acidic, <clears throat> runs on the acid side. If you check, check the pH of your saliva, it would be like 4 or 5. Uh, and, 
when, uh, when molecules like arecoline, which are called alkaloid bases, are in an acidic environment, they pick up a hydrogen ion, and the fact that they have that charge on them makes them slower to absorb into the blood. And so if you can do something to increase the pH or decrease the acidicness and increase the basicness of your mouth, then it will get absorbed more quickly. And that's what the, the slaked lime does, the calcium hydroxide. So it enhances absorption and you get a bigger effect. This is coca tea from South America, <clears throat> uh, which that cup of coca tea, which is stuffed full of coca leaves, has way, 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 way less of a stimulant effect to it than a small cup of coffee. Uh, <clears throat> and yet, yeah, that's illegal, you know, in the United States. Uh, and uh, uh, so the coca plant is a beautiful plant, Erythrozylum coca. Uh, it, uh, it's revered in, in South America. Uh, it's traded freely. I mean, you can buy it in the street markets, like a huge bag right there. Those coca leaves cost like 20 cents in, in Peru. <clears throat> and, uh, and folks use it by putting it in their mouth uh, and sucking on the leaf. But they also discovered sometime thousands of years ago that if they put some slaked lime in there at the same time, <laughs> some burnt rock, uh, then it, it, they get a bigger buzz from the, from the coca leaf. I mean, amazing. So, so there are shamans that practice ritually with the coca leaf as a sacred plant, uh, like this mother and son uh, uh, pair that we, that we hung out with for a day. Uh, and, uh, they, and you can buy these coca products everywhere. I mean, in stores, just full of like candies and cookies and juices and whatever, you know, any, uh, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of coca product. Uh, in 1859, cocaine was isolated from the coca leaf. And, aha, okay, now we've got the molecule. Now, nobody has a problem with coca leaves. They don't, their life doesn't like spin into the, into oblivion uh, because they've, they're chewing too many coca leaves. However, Almost everyone has a problem with cocaine if they mess around with that too long. Uh, and so there's something vastly different about having this you know, purified active substance uh, from cocaine, this white powder which has been purified from the coca plant has a very high potential for abuse and addiction. You've lost that ritual connection with the plant uh, that's there when one was, was, uh, was, uh, was in, ingesting the leaf rather than some chemical substance that looks like some other chemical substance. Uh, <clears throat> and it becomes a real abuse problem and ruins people's lives over and over again. Uh, and it's very similar to this one. There's another white powder uh, and looks very similar to crack cocaine, uh, but in fact it's sucrose. Uh, and that's the plant from which it comes, sugarcane. Uh, which has been domesticated by humans for a few thousand years to have high concentrations of sugar in it. Now, there's lots of sugar in nature. Fruits are full of sugar, bananas and strawberries and peaches and apricots, but people don't like destroy their lives by eating too many bananas. Uh, but people destroy their health by eating too much sugar. Uh, and when we package, when we make the white powder available in, in high concentration and we're able to put it in unlimited amounts into stuff like that, uh, or stuff like that, uh, then it becomes a real problem. And we have a, you know, not only do we have an opioid overdose crisis, we have a sugar overdose crisis, which is killing people more slowly. It's not, you know, the rapid death of overdose. It's like diabetes, uh, metabolic diseases, cardiovascular disease, and so forth that accumulates over, over decades. And this was another in the, in the news last month uh, at UC Berkeley, the soda tax, which was passed in Berkeley, the very first city in the United States to have a tax on sugared beverages three years ago. They finally did outcome uh, and found that it had a 52% uh, reduction in the consumption of sugared beverages in Berkeley uh, compared to before the tax, whereas in, in other neighboring cities, it did not change. Okay. Kava, this may be the last one. Okay, so Kava piper methysticum uh, is a piper. It, piper nigrum is black pepper. Uh, piper beetle is the leaf they wrapped the, the areca nut in, and that got the whole name beetle nut because of that. <clears throat> and piper methysticum is another pepper plant uh, that 
uh, grows in Southeast Asia and in the South, South Pacific Islands. And there they harvest the root and they make a water slurry of the root and drink that. Uh, it has physiological activity. It, it produces a kind of euphoriant, relaxed effect. Um, and a number of molecules have been identified out of there. You know, there's dozens of different molecules in any plant. There are six that have been implicated as being the most kind of physiologically active in the kavats. These guys here, what do they do? Well, they do all that. Uh, they enhance GABA-A receptor activity. They inhibit reuptake of norepinephrine dopamine. They bind the cannabinoid receptors. They inhibit monoamine oxidase. They reduce the neural, neuronal electrical excitability by messing with sodium and calcium channels. But how that translates into whatever the mind-altering effects are, we don't have a clue. Uh, so, so basically, I, I want to make one point here in closing. Uh, there's all these plants, which have, and some that I didn't mention that you'll hear about later, psilocybe mushrooms, ayahuasca. Uh, there are all these plants uh, that have powerful uh, effects on, on the mind and on the body. Uh, have been appreciated for centuries or millennia by human cultures, have been revered and respected and used ritualistically, uh, that have been reduced to kind of thinking about them as chemicals in many cases, single chemical substances. Uh, and, uh, and then these single chemical substances are often associated with single neurotransmitter systems, which is a whole other story that we don't have time to go there now, but the idea that, oh yeah, so I know how peyote's working, it's just sticking to serotonin 2A receptors and that's why it's psychedelic. Okay, next question. <laughs> so, you know, something like that. Um, so it really is, a, it's this kind of quest for oversimplifying the complexity of life uh, in a way that makes us able to think we grasp it. Uh, that, but can also in some way interfere with our, with our reverence for uh, the power of what the substances are. So, I, I, you know, there's two things I think that have interfered with our ritual relationship historically with these plants. I mean, one of them is this reduction of thinking about them as just molecules sometimes. Uh, and the other is commodification, which happens everywhere, of course, and that, that is our modern world. Uh, the commercialization and, and, uh, and massive marketing of just about anything that can be so marketed. Uh, and so the task really is to stay connected uh, with the reverence in some way for the reverence of their pharmacon, of their power as medicines and poisons, as pleasure, substances of pleasure, poison, prescription, and prayer. So with that, I'll end for tonight. And thank you.